I'm going to take over this week. Steve's going to take over next week, I hope. <laughs> he said he would. I, I'm counting on that because I'm not going to prepare anything. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we're going to jump back into Psalms this week. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we just lift you up as we get started, and I thank you that your word is a light to our path. Uh, it is uh, your vision of who we are to be. I thank you that you've revealed yourself through your son, and we have never really been able to live up to his perfection and your perfection. We know that you're a holy God, a righteous God. Lord, we want to be like you. So Lord, as we open up your word, give us your heart and your vision and your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're in Psalms chapter 8, moving right along. It's going to take me a few years to get through this. Uh, (laughs) Verse 1 says, for the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. And I want to just stop there because this in and of itself packs the, the psalm in some directions. The Giddeth uh, is a type of lyre that probably originated in the Philistine city of Gath. Now, if you remember what happened in Gath, there, when the Philistines stole the ark, they went and put it in the temple of Dagon. Dagon fell over and they were like, oh, this is a bad idea. So they sent it off to Gath. Um, So this psalm has some connection to the ark. The other thing that happened in Gath, who is the main character, is Goliath. So we have that idea of David connected to Goliath. And then the third thing that happened in Gath is David, when he was running from Saul, went to Gath. And so you have all this baggage that's tied up in this idea of of this particular instrument that originated in, in Gath. So we think that maybe David um, had learned the instrument when he was stationed in Gath, uh, hiding from Saul. Um, so he got really familiar with it. And it's interesting, There, there's one other guy that's connected to the psalm, which is Obed-Edom, uh, the Gittite, um, whose house the ark was left for three months before David came back and, and moved the ark back into, uh, into Jerusalem. Um, so there's a, a lot of ark connection. There are two other verses that connect uh, the Giddeth, Githith, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, Psalms 81 and 84, which should be semi-familiar with you, especially 84. Uh, 81 uh, connects it to the temple. It says, uh, verse 3 is, Blow the trumpet at the new moon festival, at the full moon festival, at our feast days. Psalm 84.10 is the better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. So we're all connecting this psalm to the ark and to the presence of God, and specifically... These are psalms that relate to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is about 
God coming and tabernacling with us. He's, he's coming with us in this temporary state, and we're going to dwell with him. Okay, So they would build little tabernacles that would have kind of open roofs, and they would look out into the sky, and we think that possibly that is the context of David writing this, that he is at nighttime, he is looking up to the sky, and he's contemplating God and his glory. Uh, Thomas Fuller, actually, uh, in, in reference to this psalm, he summarizes his ideas on it by saying, Night was made for man to rest in, but when I cannot sleep, may I with a psalmist entertain my waking with good thoughts not to use them as opium to invite my corrupt nature to slumber, but to bolt out of out bad thoughts which otherwise would possess my soul. So it gives you a little context to, to where we're going. Verse 1, the, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Psalms uh, 19 kind of repeats the idea. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of your hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they reveal knowledge. And there's no speech or language where your voice is not heard. Romans uh, chapter 1 kind of reiterates this idea that what can be known about God is plain to them. That's plain to everybody. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That is, he has displayed his splendor in everything that is made. And so as we look at creation, as we look at just anything that's created, we should be able to see aspects of the splendor of God even in each other sometimes we we fail to see that in in some people (laughs) but that's okay it's there because we're all made in the image of God it's his splendor that is in each of us interesting Colossians takes it a little further Colossians says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God And Ephesians says, he ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Where is the display of the splendor? It's above the heavens. So we see this idea that this is prophetic of Jesus' exaltation to the heavens. He's displaying his splendor. Because God's invisible. There's no way to display the invisible God until you have a tangible, visible being who is Jesus. And he ascended to the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You know, Jesus quotes this psalm uh, in Matthew. He's healing the blind and the lame. And 
the Pharisees uh, or the the children start uh, crying Hosanna to the Son of David. It says the, the Pharisees were or the the scribes uh, saw this and they were indignant. And they said, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yeah. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. It's interesting. In one uh, translation, it says establish strength. In the New Testament, Jesus uh, refers to... um, the Septuagint version, and it translates prepare praise. And I think that's really fascinating because that's what God is doing. When we praise God, we are empowered and established by and in God. He prepares his praise to display his power. And he does that for a purpose. And in Psalms uh, 22, it says, you inhabit or are enthroned in the praises of your people. So we, as we praise God, as children of God, as infants in the faith, are enthroning God and establishing the truth of who he is to the world around us. Corinthians says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the mighty. And that's exactly what's going on in Matthew. He is saying, these kids know better than you guys. God has prepared praise and he has ordained this for a reason. It's interesting, the reason is because of the adversary. It is to make the enemy and the revengeful stop. And what happens in the context of Matthew? Exactly that. He quotes this verse, and the Pharisees have no response. And we see that over and over and over, where, uh, you know, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. And, and they, uh, they say, you know, hey, who, who's... Who's to tell us what to do? We're going to praise God. And, and it, they're like, we don't know what to do about these guys. They don't have the wisdom like we'd expect. They're just ignorant guys from Galilee. <laughs> and they were just kind of confused on how to deal with that. In the same way, it's interesting, this, this word for enemy goes back to Genesis, uh, where Abraham... Uh, is is given the promise where he says, I'm going to multiply your seed and you're going to be like the stars of the heavens and your offspring shall possess the gate of the enemy. Now what happens when you possess a gate? It means you've conquered the city. The whole idea, how do you stop the enemy? You destroy them. You conquer them. And so what he's saying in this verse is... He has established infants and nursing babes to establish the strength of his kingdom because there are people that are against it. 
And he says, I'm just using the weak things. I don't need these mighty men. I don't need these amazing intellectuals. I just need really simple, faithful people that will do what I've called them to do, just like children. And ultimately, when we're doing that, when we're being obedient, when we're being faithful, it makes the enemy cease. It changes the revengeful. And it changes our own hearts so that we're no longer revengeful. And we stop being the enemy of God because we recognize that we're the children of God. And we're here to establish his strength, not our own, but his. He goes on in verse 3, When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care about him? It's interesting, David doesn't mention the sun. Why? Because we assume he's writing it at nighttime, <laughs> right? Makes sense. This is a nighttime creation meditation. I think that's a good uh, overview of, of what the psalm is about. He says, I've considered the heavens and the works of your fingers. You know, this idea of the works of your fingers is the meticulous detail. It, it's, it's used when we're referring to uh, needlework or etchings, fine detail. And when we look at the sun and, the, and the, the heavens, we understand it as extremely detailed. While it's grand and, and you know, intensely vast, it's also particularly detailed. And there's a reason for that. Genesis 1, 14 through 19 says, the moon and the stars were given a purpose. And that purpose was to govern and rule the night. What was our purpose? The same thing. To govern and rule over the earth. That was the same command. And the stars were there to establish time. What was the purpose that we understand time for? It says that time leads us to repentance. So as we look at the heavens, as we look at the skies and the grandeur of everything, it should bring us to humility first because we realize how small we really are. But it brings us to a right place where we understand that God has ordained us for a purpose, even though we're just seemingly insignificant in this grand scheme of the whole creation. What was the purpose of this, the moon and the stars? It was to give light in the midst of darkness. What's our purpose now? Jesus said, be the light of the world. Go into the world. Share the reality of who Jesus is. The vision of Christ. And so as we look at these things, we respond with 
an understanding of our own position. It's interesting, Job asks the same question, but he asks it from a different standpoint. He asks it out of depression. It's like, why? <laughs> what am I that you're even, why do I have to suffer? Why is all this going on? David responds a little differently. He's asking it out of awe. He's just amazed. We are a physical speck. And as rebels against God, why didn't he just wipe out humanity? Ephesians gives us the answer. We were by nature children of wrath. This is Ephesians 2, uh, 3 through 7. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So by grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Here's the key. So that in ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. What's the purpose? It's a future purpose. We are ultimately the display of God's grace and mercy in the future, not just now, but we have something else to look forward to. And even now, as we're sinners, he says, this is the whole purpose. Who are we going to display that to? I don't know. It's not human, whatever it is. He has a much bigger plan going on. Interesting, this could read a little differently. It says, what is man? This could be, what is mortal humanity? This is Inosh. Um, what is mortal humanity that you take thought of him, that you're mindful of him, that you even consider him, that you remember him? You know, so often we live lives where we feel like we're forgotten and, and we're not cared for. And, and the whole point of this is David recognizes that God remembers him. And what does he remember? He remembers his promises to us. He has promised to fulfill all that he said he's going to do. And he remembers those promises, and he's keeping those, even though it seems like it's taking forever for him to return. He has kept so many promises in the past, and he will continue to keep those promises. The second part, the son of Adam, this is Ben-Adim. It's not the same as mankind. That you care for. This is uh, Pequod. Uh, to visit or observe or appoint. Interesting, that's what the feasts were for. They were for the visitation. The Lord will vi visit you during the feasts. He will appoint these times for all of you to gather together 
and celebrate him because he's going to do something special at these times. And finally, that he observes, that is, he is watching over or taking care of those times. They're specific. Interesting, it relates to this moon and stars. What's the purpose? For times and seasons. It all connects. Um, uh, interesting, the first time this word cares for is used uh, when Sarah is visited by the Lord. You know, he's, he's uh, promised that she's going to have a son. And it says, the Lord visited Sarah and did as he promised. God visited in the administration of two things. Fulfilling the promise that he had. The promise of mercy. He is fulfilling something. He's imparting mercy to her. He's given her a child that she was desperate for. There are other times when God visits, and it's a judgment. He visits the city. And watch out for the hour of his visitation, because it's a time of judgment. Exodus 4.31 says, When they heard that the Lord had visited the people and seen their affliction, they bowed in worship. And really, when we recognize that God is visiting us, that he sees our challenges, he understands our afflictions, it should respond with that appreciation. That should well up in us that he does love us. He does care for us despite what we're going through, despite the challenges. Verse 5. You've made him a little lower than God. Some of your translations may say the angels. Uh, the actual word is Elohim. You've made him a little lower than the Elohim, depending on your understanding of that. You can translate it God or the angels. You crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. What was the original point of humanity? Genesis says we were to rule. What is man that we should be ruling this vast creation, this earth that he's given us? That was at the creation, before the fall, right? We were supposed to rule. We were supposed to subdue the earth. But he repeats the same command after the fall. When Noah lands on Mount Ararat, he says, Go, subdue the earth, and rule it. So the mandate is still there, that we are supposed to be those who are ultimately ruling the earth. And that 
has a lot of a lot in it. I'm not going to unpack that today. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting to explore. And I think that there is some important things about that. To subjugate the world, it wasn't for angels to do, but for humanity to do. Humanity is made in the image of God. Our intent is to be just under him in glory, in majesty. But the reality is we're fallen. We're imperfect, and we don't do that right. We fail in that. We don't fully realize it until we look to Jesus, because he has fulfilled that purpose. He has been put in this position for the purpose of revealing what it means to rule, what it means to subject the world to him. He's revealed that to us. Interestingly, John 13 semi-quotes this. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, girded about himself, and he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. He says, this is what it means to rule. This is what it means to follow me. It is to take on the role of the servant. It's not about oppression. It's about carrying all of the creation into the presence of God and bringing them along and serving one another. It's not to dominate. It's to maintain, just like the stars. What were the stars supposed to do? To maintain order, time, the seasons. And so that's what we're supposed to do. To maintain order in all of creation. Matthew 28, 18 says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Which means over us too, right? And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to make people who follow. What's a disciple? It is one who learns the teaching of another person or another and, and follows that teaching. He becomes a lifelong learner of the teaching of that person. So what he's saying is, I want you to make other people, since you are already lifelong learners, I want you to encourage others to become learners of Jesus. How do we do that? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the point of baptism? It is death and resurrection. When we baptize someone, 
We are bringing them into a new submission. They admit that they have no power. They are giving over their power to another entity. And he says, I want you to call them to follow me and to submit to me as God, as ruler, as Lord, baptizing them under the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. How do you teach? It's not just words. It's not just standing in front of everybody and telling them what to do. Real teachers do it by example. So we are to be imagers of God, of Jesus himself in service to one another submitting first to him and following him and then he has a promise I'm with you always even to the end of the age we only know our true value when we come in relationship with God Otherwise, we lose that. Or we overvalue ourselves. And we think of ourselves as way greater than we really are. David balances those ideas. He looks at all of creation. And he recognizes how small he really is. But at the same time, he looks at creation. And he recognizes that God has given him a purpose to rule. And David had a special position of rulership. He was the king. He was to serve Israel. And there were times when he failed to do that. And there were times when he did it excellently. And for each of us, we're all going to go through that. We're going to have times of failure. And we're going to have times of mountaintop experiences where God's just doing things. It's important that we come back to that right reality. The right position that God's put us in. From the smallest to the greatest, we are all to be ruling this earth. We are all to be Imagers of God Himself. Calvin said, There's no proper knowledge of humankind apart from the knowledge of God. Therefore, the God who makes Himself known makes us to know ourselves. We were a little lower than God. Interesting, this little lower can be translated a little differently. It can be translated for a short time lower. We know that Jesus chose to lower himself to the position of servanthood, to the position of a baby, that he could come and serve us. But it was for a short time. He has ascended to the heavens. 
It's interesting if you translate it in relation to angels. It says, we will judge angels. We will have a position over the angelic realm. Why? To teach them about God's grace and mercy. We're to come alongside and be imagers of God because that's what he's created us to be. And I don't claim to understand that, but it's a glorious thing. And it's, it's mind-boggling, but it's scripture. And the word is truth. And it's exciting. He has something grand for each of us. Hebrews applies this to the future. Hebrews 2 um, says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Hebrews directly said, this is Jesus. It's not just about humanity, even though it has context about us. Corinthians 15 finishes the idea, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And we're looking forward to that. When death is removed from the equation. It's the last thing to be removed. And it's a promise. It is a plan. God's work is to abolish. Not just conquer, but abolish. Destroy death that it no longer has any hold on any of us. So as we look forward to that, with David, verse 9 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That should be our heart. That should be our response to realizing what he's done for us, what he's doing in us and through us. God's revealed what we're to be. We're his image, image bearers. We reveal God's glory and majesty. We're created to rule and to reveal grace, not only here on the earth, but to the heavens. And we need to start now living lives filled with grace to those around us. At the fall, we lost that direction. But Jesus has finished the work. He's reinstated and renewed God's true image. And God's established him above all that every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. He raised us to dwell with him. And his promise is that we may be where he is. From start to end, God is the only majestic ruler 
of all the universe. Is his name truly in the rightful place in your heart today? And are you fulfilling your purpose to reflect his image and fulfill his call? I challenge you today. Examine yourself with fear and trembling. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. But they're coming to an end in his time as the heavens declare there's a time for everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have done a great and wonderful work in dying for us, in making restitution for our rebellion. We thank you that you have given us a purpose to serve one another. And we pray that we would truly be known by our love. We pray that your word would go out into this world and not return void. In Jesus' name, amen.